You're listening to Campfire Conversations, brought to you by Three Rivers Land Trust. Connected to the land, committed to conservation. Well, welcome back to another episode of Campfire Conversations. Uh, first, we're going to start off the top with some somewhat sad, somewhat happy news. Um, kind of a little bit bittersweet, but... I've got Crystal Cockman here with us, our Director of Conservation. Is that your official title? Yes. Director of Conservation. Conservation. You were on like the fifth episode we ever did, and it's been forever since you've been back on. But this will be kind of like a refresher of that episode um, where we're just going to go through. We talk a lot about the conservation work that we do, and it's confusing. It's confusing for even people on staff. I mean, conservation easements and the work that we do is not an easily – understood and processed uh process so uh crystal's here to talk everything conservation easements with us but first we've got some news so do you want to share that yeah so um we have uh recently lost two staff members mikey and cody um they have gone to work for a nationwide land trust so um we are obviously gonna miss them very much um but we wish them all the best so um, the show goes on. The show goes on. Yeah. It's probably pretty weird to hear me talking first instead of Cody. It's weird for me to be the one talking first, to be honest. But, um, yeah, like Crystal said, the show goes on and probably our path moving forward with this podcast is we're going to have more guests. We're going to hear more from staff members and people across the region and just kind of bring in conservation and wildlife and natural resources, news and interviews to you through this platform, which I think is fun. I think it's what this, this program should be. Um, and just kind of spreading the word about conservation in North Carolina. So uh, stick with us, and we will continue to preach the gospel of conservation. And speaking of which, I'm excited about today's episode because I've got our uh, our conservation guru, Crystal, with us, who knows everything there is to know. She's been here for 15 years, 15 yeah. years, um, which is she's the longest employee that we have, the most tenured employee that we have here at the Land Trust, and is a wealth of knowledge about everything land trusts and conservation in general. Um, so we're super fortunate to have her and we're going to go through an overview of the projects that we've completed this year. Uh, but before we do that, I want to kind of go into definitions of some of the things that we're going to be talking about over like the next hour. That way it makes a little bit more sense and defining everything up front should be the, the best way to accomplish that. So we're going to start off super basic. What is an easement? What is a conservation easement? Conservation easements, the definition that I give landowners when they call wanting to learn about options for conservation is that it's a legal document um, that is tailored to each individual property and it restricts development. Yeah, I think that's very, I mean, every single one, my job, I used to actually work underneath Crystal and I uh, was helping her with, with that side of the organization. Now I do the stewardship side, which is once we put a conservation easement, one of these legally binding documents and agreements on a property, we are required to go out annually to ensure that what was agreed upon within the easement is being upheld. So I go to each one of these properties, and there's hundreds of them, a few hundred. Yeah, um, about 300 different projects. Yeah, including the Sandhills for sure. Yeah. And like Crystal said, 
they're flexible and they're different. And so you have to go through and each one has its own little caveats. Um, These are the landowner's wishes, correct? I mean, it's really what the landowner wants within reason of conservation and doing the right thing on the property. The landowner can kind of mingle with it and play with it how they how they want yeah so we have a template that we start from depending on what type of easement it is and there's really two main different kinds there's a working lands easement which is what we do the most of that allows a landowner to continue to do forestry operations and farming operations on the property Um, they just won't turn it into a a Walmart or a subdivision. Um, And then there are more forever wild easements, which are about natural area protection, uh, where you don't do timber harvest um, or agricultural operations. It's more about keeping the land natural. Um, So those are are sort of the two main types, but there's a lot of nuance and variation on each individual property. And, you know, we kind of start out the conversation when a landowner comes to us thinking about protecting their property with the question of, well, what are your goals for the property? Yeah. What What do you want to see happen to this land in the future? Um, and so we kind of go from there. Um, and they are flexible. There are certain things that are required, but, um, you know, within that, there is the ability to alter things uh, to fit landowners' wishes, uh, just so long as we still feel that we are protecting the conservation values of the property. Yeah, and I think you touched on something there that's, important to note, and you probably hopped over it and didn't even realize it when you said it, but you said when a landowner reaches out to us, and that's may sound trivial, but that's an important point. We are not, we have a small staff, smaller as of now, and I would like to touch on one thing. I learned and worked under Mikey and Cody for the five years that I've been here and learned so much from them and so happy for them with their new step, but it's sad to see him go at the same time, but we're thrilled and, you know, opportunities present themselves. And I think it's, you know, just a great opportunity for their family. So congratulations to them. This isn't a sad day. It's just a little sad for us. But um, back to our point or my point that I was making is we have a smaller staff now. And the whole thing is all the projects that Crystal's doing for the most part are coming through the door to us. This phone calls that come in to you and you're not out knocking on doors saying, I sure would like to protect your property because it is a pretty personal decision for a landowner to make. So, Yeah, I always say that probably 90% of our work is reactionary. So it's people that come to us. Um, We don't have the time to, you know, we have enough work with folks coming to us that we don't have the time to sort of select properties. And and I don't think that method really works anyway um, because I feel like the most successful projects are the ones where a landowner comes to us wanting to do this because conservation easement is a complicated process. It is also permanent. Yeah. So it really has to be something that you have that innate desire to do. Mm-hmm. But it's not only, you know, I'm already this, what we're six minutes in and I'm going to go off script here, but um I always found it interesting when working with you and going out with the new position that I have and meeting the landowners that it's it's all kinds of different people, types of people that conserve their property. Some people conserve their property from just a, you know, deep family tie. You know, this property has been in my family for five generations. Some people are true conservationists and they're going through and this is just like, I love this place. This place has the natural elements and they're, whether they're biologists or a hobbyist, you know, they know about their property and know what makes it special. And some people are doing it for 
you know, tax benefits along with protecting their property and kind of savvy business people as well that do it. So it's, you know, there's a lot of play in terms of who you do it at the end of the day, we'll work with you because it's conserving. If it's a project that we're interested in, it's conserving an important natural area to us. So, And I will say too, that just because we work with landowners who come to us does not mean that we are able to work with every landowner that comes to us. Mm -hmm. Um, We do have sort of a checklist of criteria um, of things that we're looking for um, and a score sheet. And we sort of run projects through that. and we have a committee that reviews all of those. And then ultimately the board makes the decision on which projects we accept. What are some of the just the top tier scoring criteria on your check sheet? Yeah, so obviously size, you know, the bigger the better. Um, as I've said on the prior program, it takes just as much work to do a 500 acre conservation easement as it does a 50. Um, so, you know, that's certainly something that we factor in. We typically do not look at easement projects that are less than 40 acres. Yeah. Um, just because we don't have the staff capacity to steward a lot of really small projects spread out across 15 counties. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, does it protect a riparian area? Does it protect a natural heritage area as identified by the state natural heritage program? Uh, is it protecting prime farmland soils? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of different criteria, um, but those are just a few of them. Yeah, without getting too much in the weeds, at some point we need to get on somebody from the NHP, the Natural Heritage Program, mm-hmm. to come on and talk about uh, talk about their work because I, I find it fascinating. Um, all right, we'll move on to – so we've talked about kind of what an easement is and the process that goes into a landowner reaching out and then beginning the very, very beginning of that process – Um, but before we kind of dive into more of that process, first of all, there's kind of two different types of easements. Well, there's a few, you've talked about like working lands easements versus no touch, but there's another kind of subsect of easement, which is they can be donated. They can be a donated easement or they can be a purchase easement. So explain the difference between those, those two types of easements. A donated easement is an easement that is typically just between us and the landowner. And the only compensation for that is what you would receive in tax benefits. So the difference between that and a purchased easement would be that for a purchased easement, we're typically applying for grants or looking for private donors who are willing to pay for the value of a conservation easement. And I guess that means I should break down how we value conservation yeah, easements. Uh-huh. Please. Um, and there is what's called a conservation easement appraisal, um, and it's basically a before and an after. So if this property could be developed to the maximum, you know, if we had a house on every half acre lot, what would it be worth? And the now, highest the highest and best use right. value of and that now, property. And yeah. now with these restrictions that may limit it to only one home site to you know, a hundred acres, what is it worth now? And that difference is the value of the easement. So mm-hmm. you could you could donate that. Um, which isn't, you know, let me, let me slow that down for just a second, just so, cause that kind of goes by quick mm-hmm. highest and best, best use value. What is the maximum amount of money that you could get off in its current state in the current market off this property minus the value of what this property is worth now that the stipulations in this easement are enforced on this property, um, which would, I mean, at the very bare minimum, uh, limited development rights and, loss of right or at least hindrance of right you know sometimes there's subdivision clauses but for the most part 
inability to subdivide the property into the future, which is pretty significant. Which in means terms of to break it into pieces yeah. and sell it. Yeah. Not to put a subdivision on it, <laughs> yeah. but to divide yeah. the property in any way and sell it in pieces. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's another thing that uh, our easements prevent. So highest and best use minus the second appraisal equals value of the conservation easement. Okay. Sorry. C- carry yeah. on. No, you're fine. Um, so that's what the value of the easement is. And when we're talking about a donated easement, it's the theoretical value of the land. It's yeah. not any sort of cash that actually comes to the land trust. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just what you're eligible for your federal tax deduction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And then purchased easements, as I said, are easements where we're able to actually find funding to pay a landowner for that difference in value. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are much more complicated. They require grant writing most of the time. They're much longer processes. So, I mean, anywhere from two to four to even more years to actually get one of those purchased easements accomplished, um, depending on which agency you're working with. Yeah. Um, some are easier to work with than others, just the reality of it. Um, or, you know, potentially purchased easements can be from private donors who have a special interest in protecting, you know, a specific natural area or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, and back to donated, the reason it's called, I guess, to make sense of it all, the reason it's called a donated easement is the value of the easement that you put on the property is basically considered a charitable donation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's where the tax write-offs come from. That's your giving up value of the property. That's a donation. For the betterment of For, the mm-hmm. state of North Carolina. Exactly. So there are public benefits. The, mm-hmm. the easement does not open the land up to the public, mm-hmm. but the public can view the scenic beauty of it from the roadside. It's protecting water quality. So there are public benefits to yeah. it. Unless the landowner in that donated easement said, I want the public to be able to access this property. You know, it's kind of up to the landowner, but it certainly doesn't mean that the public can go out and enjoy it whenever they want, still trespassing. So um, so we talked a little bit about where the money comes from. Do you want to talk about a few of the partners that we work with often, just uh, kind of explain who those are? So as we're going down the list later, sure. people understand. It'll make sense. Yeah. So the Main this is organization. For, this is for purchased easements, by the way. Right. So when I say where does the money come from for purchased easements, and this this all may sound, if you have never listened to Crystal talk about our work before, it may sound wild to you that the state of North Carolina, um, you know, there's agencies that will pay to protect property. To keep you from developing yeah, your property. Yeah, to keep you from developing your property. That blows people away right. very often. But that's the reality. And I think it's a good thing. I mean, we're the state of North Carolina, the federal government, um, there are entities and government agencies that are actively working with land trusts across the, across the nation, or in case of the state, across the state to protect important properties and make sure that they stay undeveloped in green space, to protect water quality, to protect, depending on the goals of the agency. So and that's where the agency comes in. Right. Right. And it's a non-regulatory way to ensure there is open space. Yeah. So it's people voluntarily coming to us, wanting us to apply for these grants to protect these properties. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important distinction. Uh, one of the ones that we work with the most, uh, you've heard me refer to as the Clean Water Management Trust Fund. It's a state agency. They actually changed their name last year to I the still NC say clean Land water. and Water Fund. Uh, that comes, I'm actually old enough, to, been with the land trust long enough to know why they made that change. Um, initially, clean water actually only worked on riparian easements. 
Um, and I guess it was around, oh, I'm not going to get the year right, somewhere around 2007 or 8 that the Natural Heritage Trust Fund, which was another state trust fund that paid to protect specific natural areas, they does the... Um, the government dissolved that fund and actually rolled its duties into the Clean Water Management Trust Fund. So now they do more than just clean water projects, hence the name changed to NC Land and Water Fund. Yeah, I like it. So NC Land and Water Fund, and then that leads into the Agricultural Development and Farmland Preservation Trust Fund, right. ADFP. Yeah, so that's another state trust fund that pays for uh, partial purchase of easements on farmland. Mm -hmm. So there, kind of when we talked about the goals of the the agency, the state agency itself, land and water, is focusing on important natural areas, riparian buffers, ADFP is focusing on agricultural development and farmland preservation. So And it pairs with the USDA's program, the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program, also mm -hmm. known as ASEP, um, to purchase, to pay for another percentage of the purchase of a conservation easement on farmland. So typically those two grants uh, pair with each other to do projects. Yep. And then there were others in the past, and I won't get too much into them, like DOT had a mitigation easement in the past that's no longer exists, which was called ALE, where when they're building roads and expanding I guess with eminent domain going through property and taking property, especially important natural areas, they had a fund to mitigate that. It's called EEP. EEP. Would I say ALE? That <laughs> yeah. was that was. I'm so many acronyms. Yeah. EEP. I'm the one doing those contracts. I, I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Which stood for the Ecosystem Enhancement Program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and EEP. Um, so we we have a handful of those projects that we've done, even though it now exists. But again, they're perpetual easements, so you still have to go back and monitor those, even though the program doesn't necessarily exist. Mm -hmm. The easement is forever. So uh, I think that's important to note as well. And there are a handful of others. Oh, tons of them. Plus, yeah. there are private foundations that also will, will fund projects. Yeah. Um, and speaking of private organizations trying to fund projects, I think it's a good time for us to note like our plans or hopes or desires for trying to do something similar ourselves with a farmland fund. Um, do you want to speak on that a little bit? Well, we've had the idea that we would really like to raise some specific funding to do farmland projects because there is limited funding available at the state level. Um, there's a lot more at the federal level, but you have to have a 25% match. So if you don't get that from the state, it could be supplanted by private donor money or our own trust fund money, uh, you know, monies that we would have to purchase those easements. And that would be a way to get even more farmland protected than we currently are able to. Um, you know, we have a revolving list of farmers who are interested in doing these purchased easements. Um, and they're really, you know, great tools for farmers who may be struggling uh, to be able to purchase more equipment or more land to make their operations more sustainable. Um, you know, just right now, we could do over 3,000 acres through more than a dozen farms uh, of interested landowners if we had the funding. To if do we it. had the money and weren't reliant on grant agencies to provide that funding. Right. Um, and I think that's one thing that I really took from my time that I spent working with Crystal was the phone calls that I fielded and the visited, the visits that I took with farmers who called all the time. 
and they would, you would go out to their farm and talk about, you know, potential conservation options. And they're saying, oh, well, I'm very much interested in the ADFP program. I'd like to get paid for this conservation easement so I could use that funding to pay off the farm or get more equipment. Right. It would be super helpful to me. And like Crystal said, I, that number may have just slipped on by, but there's over a dozen farmers that are on a list that we have that have expressed interest that they want to protect their farm. They would like to do a, con- a purchased easement. And there's just not enough money to go around. There's just not enough money to go around. So um, it's, you know, it's hard to look at that list and see the potential conservation just sitting there. Um, but there's not really much you can do about it. Hence the, you know, idea of having a farmland fund and trying to raise the money to have that fund so that we can do those projects. It's something that we're working towards. Um, but for now we're continuing on with the model that we're doing. And as we get to here pretty soon, uh, we still have plenty on our plate. So it's not like we're lacking work by any means. Um, cause I think you'll be very impressed with the amount of conservation that's happened this year alone. So, okay. Any other notes that I have before we get into the projects? Yeah. One more. This is a fun one. How long do projects take crystal? <laughs> that is a loaded question. Yes, it is. Um, we can do donated easements, you know, in as little as probably six months. Um, whereas purchased easements can take as long as four or five more years um, to complete just because of all the due diligence that has to be done, not to mention even just applying for and successfully getting a grant. I mean, a lot of times you don't get it the first time you apply. So there are many projects that I've applied two, three, four times before we get the money. Um, and each of those is a year cycle. So, um, you know, there are projects that I've been working on almost the whole time I've been at the land trust, <laughs> it feels like. <laughs> that may be an exaggeration, but there are a lot that take a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, Which so. takes a very dedicated landowner it does. with time on their hands to just say, like, I want this done. Time's not an issue. Um, a lot of patience. Yes. Absolutely. And probably sometimes some frustration as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Before I move on, I want to kind of give a quick breakdown as fast as I can. Correct me where I'm wrong on the funding mechanisms of the tax breaks. And then the, like you mentioned a word, and I'll give this definition really quick, but match money from the purchase easements. So I'll do this as quickly as I can. Tell me where I'm wrong. Uh, for a donated easement, you get your appraisal, you go through the project close, the project closes, and you're getting ready to take your tax breaks on the property. You can take 50% of your gross adjusted income every year for 15 years to, of towards the total value of that easement for 15 years until you hit the total value of that easement in tax breaks or until the 15 years expires. Is that correct? That is correct. I will say that Sam and I are not accountants. Yes, so thank you. Please, hundred percent. Please speak with your own personal financial advisors as to how tax benefits may apply to your current situation. <laughs> that's a hundred percent right. But it's just a quick breakdown. But that's something that we, when I worked with Crystal, I learned to save from her very quickly on, which is, I'm not an accountant. Talk to yours. Um, regarding purchased easements, you get your conservation appraisal or your conservation easement appraisal, and you get the value of your conservation easement. In the case of the land and water fund, you can get 50% of the value of that easement upon closing in cash, about. 
we try to we try to aim for that fifty percent paid, fifty percent match. Uh-huh. Um, they will do more than that. Sometimes landowners want to donate more than that if they don't need as much funding. Sure. Um, so there's no hard and fast rule with Land and Water Fund, but we find that 50% is a model that's much more likely to be favorably looked upon by their board. And then, so the match would be match made by the landowner. So you get 50% of the value in easement and cash, and then the match is a donation, and then you can take the tax breaks on that 50%, 50% as a theoretical number. And then with a partnership with the NCDA and the USDA, the NCDA puts in a 25% match, the USDA puts in a 50% match, and then the landowner puts in a 25% match, which then they can take the tax breaks on. You got it. Okay. I taught you well. There you go. Well, there's the breakdown in terms of, you know, I guess, compensation for a conservation easement across the board with those programs that we're talking about, whether it be donated conservation through land and water fund or uh ncda and usda so now that we've now that we've gone through some definitions let's get to the fun stuff which is what have we protected let's talk about what we've protected this year so i've got a list right here we talked about it but let's do the big numbers first how many acres so far this year we have protected three thousand five hundred and ninety six acres and we are on track to potentially protect as many as 5,000 acres by the end of the year. It's a big year. It is a big year. Now, a lot of that is the Alcoa acquisition on Tuckertown Reservoir. Uh, that was 24-24. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big part of it. But we have done, outside of that project, we've closed nine other projects already this year. Um and it is October, and I anticipate several more will close before the end of the year. Um, I'm always seems like I'm working right up until that January first deadline. I've kind of I've kind of taken you to the brink on that January first <laughs> deadline when I work. <laughs> Sam and I don't have the same approach when it comes to last minute details. <laughs> if it but gets, that's okay. If it gets, it gets done, done, it gets done. That's there you right. go. Sometimes we like to hit that shot at the buzzer. It's kind of how I feel. <laughs> um, so, and just to give you an idea of value, yeah, that, please that thirty five ninety six, not counting the money that we raised for Tuckertown, just through the other nine projects, represents about four point one million dollars worth of conservation work so far this year. Yeah, excluding the seven figures associated with the Tuckertown project right. as well, which is pretty amazing. And that's the reason I asked about earlier when I said, where does that money come from? Um, You know, that $4.1 million for the 3,596 acres that have been protected comes from all of the funding sources, including loyal listeners who, you know, donate to this organization and keep the lights on. But really for funding projects, specific projects, we're talking about these grant agencies, we're talking about private uh, donors, we're talking, you know, just all the funding sources that we listed. Yeah, so, to be clear, that is just project yeah, money. Yeah, that's that is just not any money. operational mm-hmm, money. That mm-hmm. is just money that has gone into protecting land directly, which is amazing. Yeah, which is really amazing. Um, all right, now that we have the big numbers out there, let's start at the beginning of the year and kind of go through project to project. Um, the first one that I see, actually, I'll let you. This, this is these are your babies. <laughs> I'm not going to steal your thunder. Go ahead with your no, first one. No, you're fine. Um, yeah, the first project that we closed this year was back in February, and it was the second phase of a 
526-acre project that we call Poison Fork Forest. Um, and this is a largely mature hardwood tract that is on Poison Fork Creek, which is a outstanding resource water. The Randolph highest, County. It is in mm-hmm. Randolph County. A little bit of it's in Montgomery. It's yeah. kind of right on the line. Um, but uh, Poison Fork, even though the name doesn't sound so great, uh, is an outstanding resource water, which is the highest water quality designation that the state of North Carolina gives to streams. So, um, and just as a small note, we believe that poison actually is a derivation of poisson, which is French for fish. Oh, no kidding. I didn't know that. Yeah. Very cool. So a lot of people ask, where does the name Poison Fork come from? Did you mention, sorry, I was like sitting here writing some notes real quick and I missed one thing. (laughs) Did you mention that was a purchase CE? I did not. Okay. That was a a purchase conservation easement project um, that the project that we closed, the phase two was with land and water fund monies. Um, Phase one was all with private donation and also some funding from the Open Space Institute um their southeast resilient landscapes program which is a program that does not exist anymore but um it was a program that paid for protecting properties that are climate resilient right on um sweet i'm gonna make i'm just gonna kind of as we're going along um it's something that we haven't talked about if you're new to this program or you're new to three rivers land trust i think it's worth noting that we're a regional land trust that does this work, which means we work in a region, a footprint. Um, 15 counties is our territory. And I think one thing that's really cool about this list is the spread in which these projects kind of across our footprint are scattered about. And um, that's not, for staff as small as ours, that's not an easy, that's not an easy thing to do. That's a lot of travel time. um, And, it's a lot of work and a lot of dedication to the to, to conservation in general, but we really try to do a good job of of spreading out our work and making sure that everybody in our footprint has equal opportunity to protect their to protect their property. So as we're going along, I'm going to be tallying the the uh, counties that these projects are in. But I will say we're a little Randolph heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, <laughs> which is where I live. <laughs> <laughs> No coincidence there. (laughs) Okay, next. Uh, The next project that closed was uh, an acquisition from the Crowther family of 35 acres that adds on to our Two Rivers Preserve. Yeah, uh, the the point. point. Mm -hmm. Um, So that would be an addition, which if you're a sports member um, or a regular listener to this show, you've heard us talk about it, but it's a 35-acre addition to what is now Block 7 of the Point, so the newest addition to the Point property in our Sports and Access program. Which brings us up just shy of 1,400 acres at that particular area. Really nice. Um, A little secret here, it's super close to my house. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not that it's in the sports program, so it's not like it's a place where I get to go play, but it's, um, it's kind of on top of a mountain little mini mountain um it's uh very mature hardwoods um got a nice stretch of deals creek running through the property uh nice bottom lands and i think it's just a really cool addition it was one that's it just made every bit of sense in the world to add to our complex completely undeveloped um not great access into it except through our property and 
really nice. So I think we're, I think everybody on staff is thrilled that we, that we acquired that property and added it to a, like Crystal said, that makes it about a 1400 acre complex. So I think just adding on to these, these massive green spaces that we've worked hard to protect is, is a good thing. And he had, Oh, I'm going to make a list. That's Rowan. That was Rowan. All right. That's three counties. If you said that, uh, Poison Fort Phase 2 has a little tip of Montgomery in it. Then we're on to three counties. Two projects, three counties. It's a good start. (laughs) All right. What's next? Uh, Well, the next two are both Randolph. Okay. Uh, So these are two large farms, each of almost around 200 acres. One was a little more, one was a little less. Um, Both purchased farmland easements, uh, both beef cattle farms. Um, and those were done in partnership with Randolph Soil and Water Conservation District. Shout out to Randy Freeman, who had never done one before and really uh, took the ball and ran with it. That's awesome. Um, so they were actually the, the applicant for the grants. Uh, we helped them administer the grants, and then the easements were assigned to us. Yeah, sweet. Which means we're, you know, we're the monitoring agent who goes out and ensures that the stipulations within the easement are being upheld. Um, but it's nice to have somebody to help you with those projects and the application project, uh, process because, like I said, I mean, our, as you'll continue to see, Crystal's plate and Emily's plate, who we'll talk about in a minute, is uh, pretty full. So. And as to our earlier conversation about having more farms I know where you're interest, going. This is an important note. This was a way for us to somewhat cheat the system a little bit. We're only allowed to apply for so many farms each year. Through but the ADFP. local soil and water districts can also apply. So we have partnered with not only Randolph, but also Davey to get some additional farms protected of farmers who came to us that we were not able to apply for the funding for. Mm-hmm. When it comes to... And this is just a little side note, but I think it's worth, it's a question that I've asked you in the past. So I think it's worth noting when it comes to, you've got a list of 15 farms. um, How do we choose the three that get applied for? I wish it was a more complex answer, but we typically look at size. Mm -hmm. Just going back to the question of, you know, it being as easy to protect a large farm as a small farm. Um, The larger farms get, a much more uh, likely chance of us applying for them. Um, you know, obviously there are other criteria that we look at, uh, yeah, specifically sure. what we expect to rank well in the grant process. Um, and there are certain criteria, if we're looking at federal grants, that you have to have more than 50% prime farmland soils, yeah. or we cannot even apply, mm-hmm. uh, prime or statewide important. Yeah. Um, so there are some, some criteria, but generally speaking, um, we focus on the larger farms. Yeah, and I think it's por- and also important to note that, you know, as staff members, um, and I'm really talking about Crystal here, who's the one who's kind of going to be doing the work on developing this easement and working with ADFP. Um, we can make, you can make recommendations, but at the end of the day, it's the board. Right. Of, we're governed by a board of directors, um, and they're the ones who, who make the final call. Right. So I think that's worth noting as well. Um, but you know, we pick, we're allowed to apply for three, three. Or yeah. It- they've opened it up where you can apply for a few more now, but okay, for cool. most, most of the time that the trust fund has been in existence, it's been two or three. Yeah. And all that means is we've got the list of 15, 18, whatever it may be. We, the board decides the three that we're going to apply for. And then that doesn't mean those three are going to get funded either. Right. Those still have to go in front of ADFP staff 
and let them decide what will get funded and what won't. it really varies from year to year um, for a couple of years everything that applied got funded and yeah. then last year through our partnership with the soil and water districts we applied for eight farms and we got one half of one farm funded yeah yeah feast or famine so all right um yeah one of those farms by the way is you've heard from them uh those randolph county farms that was if you l- listen to the meat experience the American Dream episode, uh, you heard from Lloyd and Tammy Roberts, who uh, were one of those two beef cattle farms. That's a 200-acre farm, one of the two 200-acre farms in Randolph County. Um, they also run a store um, over there in Denton, and you can go. And uh, it's it's worth a listen. If you haven't listened to that one and you're interested in farmland projects and the American Dream, it's definitely worth that they're just great people. Also, I'm going to like to give them a shout out one more time. They sponsored Riverdance and the meal that we provided, the meat that we provided at Riverdance came from their farm and that was a donation from them. So they're great people as well. Um, and great land, land conservation supporters beyond just working with us for projects. And it looks fairly likely that we'll be doing some more conservation work with them. Sweet. Good. They're good people. Um, next. Staying in the vein of farmland preservation, the next project, uh, and these are chronological, I will say. So these have closed uh, in this order this year, just as an easy way to remember them. Uh, So in June, the Howard Farm, uh, Sam Howard and his wife Blair, uh, we did a purchased easement on 250 acres of their farm in Davie County. That's that's another county, which I'm adding to my list. (laughs) You know something I said about um, the Howard Farm? was that press release every time we like close a project and i think we've talked about this before i don't know if i talked about it on the project but it's like all that work goes into it and i learned from crystal that like the closing process was always like super anticlimactic (laughs) and it's It's like like years of work and (laughs) 10 minutes of signing papers and then it's over and it's like oh there's not really a celebration here at all (laughs) and (laughs) i guess it's on to the next one at this point but um one way we try to celebrate is putting out a press release on like social media and we'll always in our newsletters. Uh, if you're not a member of the organization, you know, one benefit of being a member of the organization is we put out two, uh, put out a biannual, um, newsletter that has all these projects, pictures and write-ups. And it's kind of our way to celebrate the conservation work we've done along with fun stuff in there. A lot of cool stuff, uh, in those, in those magazines. Um, but when we put out the Howard press release this year, it's like one of our best press releases we ever did. I think I said, so I don't want to embarrass them. I'm sure they don't listen, but I was like, it's guess yeah, Cause they're two beautiful people. It's like <laughs> Sam Howard and his wife are like, just like the prototypical American dream farm. And they're just like the pictures blew up and as we knew it would. So I, was, I thought that was funny. And they're, they're really good and folks. good people, just super good people, which is a trend. Um, that's not a coincidence. I feel like, Everybody that Crystal works with tends up being people that just, want to protect their land are generally really good folks. Yeah, mm-hmm. which makes our My job, job easier. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Okay, so we've got a handful in Randolph, Montgomery, Rowan, Davy, and we're about halfway through our list. And that's a good way to segue into Cumberland County. Mm-hmm. We closed our first Cumberland County project this year since the merger with the Sandhills Area Land Trust. So this was a 100-acre donated easement uh, that we call Big Creek Bottomlands. Um, so it's a, a, a swamp uh, and also some farmland on the uplands. Yeah. 
You know I'm all about a swamp. <laughs> I love swamp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except when it's summertime and I have to go monitor it. Uh, but that's in Cumberland County, so Val does that one. There so best case scenario. <laughs> Yeah, um, again, I keep going back to this, but uh, again, if you're new to the land trust, Crystal just said something that, uh, and and maybe loyal listeners, if you kind of tune out every once in a while, you may not know this, but gosh, I guess it was 2019, we merged with the Sandhills Area Land Trust. Um, So we had a 10-county footprint prior to that merger. Now we're 15 counties, and that includes, oh gosh, you're going to know this better than I am. Can I try first? Yeah, yeah, go I'll for try it. first. Cumberland, Hoke, Scotland, uh, Moore, and there's one that I'm leaving out. Harnett. Harnett. Thank you, Harnett. Um, so those are the five additions to. I'm gonna go through our ten county footprint, our previous. So okay, I'm gonna go north to south. Uh, Iredell, Davy, Rowan, Davidson, Stanley, Montgomery, uh, Anson, Richmond, and Randolph. That's nine. You Cabarrus. 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 Uh, duh. <laughs> duh. Cabarrus. Uh, so those are the 15 counties that we work in, if you're curious. Um, and we do projects across the board. Moore County had a huge year last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, one in Cumberland there, which we're really excited about. And then the big one uh, is next. Yeah, Tuckertown. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, September closing. And we already said was 2,424 uh, 2, acres. Yeah. And really, you know, most of this episode, we've been talking about private lands conservation. Um, but that's not the extent of what we do. I mean, this is a true public lands into the public trust, open for recreation and enjoyment for all people kind of project um, with statewide and beyond importance. So it's... I think the episode that we talked about it, Cody and I talked about it, um, said it was probably the biggest, you know, the full closing, the full Alcoa closing is probably the biggest thing that we've ever talked about on this, on this show. And I know it's probably a, just probably one of the highlights of your career feather in your cap, I'm sure. So, um, talk about counties. So that's got some Davidson in it and some Montgomery. So that's another County for us that we just checked off. Sweet. Moving on. We we've, we've already talked about Alcoa t- right. t- out the wazoo, so we'll kind of pass over that one. If you're interested, go back a couple of episodes and listen to us as we break down the full story of that of that project because it's, it's worth knowing. And that brings us back to Randolph. Uh, so the closing that is next in order is uh, the Crantford property, which is a 84-acre conservation easement on the Uwari River in Randolph County. Yep. Uwari, uh, the Uwari River has a, and it's near and dear to your heart. It's a focal area. Yeah, it's a focal area. And we have a few focal areas, one being around the point property, you know, the Yadkin River watershed, um, especially in that area. The Uwari River is definitely an important one as well. One that you've done a ton of work on. We were doing a blue way on the Uwari River before the term blue way was cool. Yeah. (laughs) So we've worked with um, the Wildlife Resources Commission to add three public accesses, uh, one of which is on land we still currently own, Low Water Bridge, mm-hmm. uh, and one of which is on land that we bought and transferred to WRC, mm-hmm. the Cable, Cable Tract, which is at, Road. Yeah, which is at the confluence of the Yadkin, mm-hmm. uh, where, well, actually where the Yadkin becomes the PD, where the Uori flows in. And uh, 
lesser known fact is when I started with the land trust as a stand back intern back in way back in 2005, I did a conservation prioritization plan for the Uori River, uh, looking at parcels along the river and seeing which ones were the most important to protect. It's awesome. Yeah. The Uori River is, um, if you've never been out to that area, uh, we talked about it in our last episode, talked about low water bridge and it's truly the mountains. Until you go out and walk in it, you're like, oh, okay, it's the mountains. Go walk in it and then tell us it's not the mountains, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, you look at the Aurora River and you think there could be trout in it. There's smallmouth. I know. There's smallmouth in it, which is hot tip. Um, but, you know, except for a few months in the summer, it just really <laughs> looks like a trout river. Um, and it's beautiful. And it, I think that is a high quality – it's not high-quality watershed, is it? I think it is high quality watershed. Wow. It is definitely nationally significant aquatic habitat. Yeah, I knew it was. I knew it was ranked very highly. So, it's an area we're really proud of. Um, and you should, if you haven't, um, it's an under. I feel like a little bit of an underutilized resource in terms of just, you know, people don't really think about it. Um, you think about going to the mountains, you're going to go up to uh, Pisgah, but there's right in the heart of the state, close to all the urban centers is a nice little mountain range and through the work of the land trust, you can go enjoy it via boat. You can go get in a kayak and float to some of the go in or out of any of the boating accesses that we put in and really go and float along a lot of conserved properties. Um, it's a very protected waterway and it's a beautiful trip. Don't go when the water's down. <laughs> You'll be dragging. I have floated the Uri River when it took me an hour and a half, and I have floated the Uri River when it took me six hours. <laughs> Same stretch. Yep, me and uh, me and Ben, the underscore drifter underscore life for those keeping track. Um, me and Ben did a float on his little pack raft um, a few months back, and it took us about five or six hours. A lot of dragging. Um, you're talking probably that stretch from Low Water Bridge Road to 109, yeah, um, which is a great float. If you're new to the area, it's a good place to start. About six and a half miles. Mm -hmm. Yep, very nice. Okay, one more, I think. Yeah, one more that has closed so far this year, um, and that is the Webster Easements, which is our, for this year, first Moore County project. Uh, and it was a 40-acre donated conservation easement on Herons Lake in Whispering Pines. I helped you with that one. You did. Yeah. Sam Sam wrote a mini grant to pay for the transactional costs. Yeah, it's so exciting. another shout out to the Land and Water Fund. Mm -hmm, for another sure. way they're making things happen. Another cool little wetland, a uh, little swampy area. Um, I think it's pretty cool. It's a little pocket and kind of a kind of a developing area uh, where forty acres are somewhat hard to come by. Yeah, um, and and it's a forever wild easement, mm -hmm. so it'll. The hardwoods that grow there will be there to protect the water quality and the, the view shed of the lake from now on. Yeah. Okay, that is seven counties. Which Not is pretty, bad. Pretty doggone Almost good. Almost halfway. And we have maybe closing in the next week four more coming down the pipe. I know you don't say, say your piece because I think it's important <laughs> to say. I never talk about a project until it's closed. Yeah. Because it's never... It's never final until the papers are signed and recorded. Okay, but I'm gonna try to pull. I'm gonna try to pull <laughs> a little bit out of you. Um, one in Davidson, maybe. Yes, one in Davidson. Um, one outside of Ashboro, potentially. Mm -hmm. 
another near Poison Fork, right? Close to Poison Fork. Mm-hmm. And then the last is a Little River project, also in Montgomery County. Sweet. So, four projects in a week. Hopefully, that's all gonna that will be happen. D- plus the through hike. Yeah, that's gonna be a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be a doozy. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> so, um, I'm trying to see. One, I we were kind of coming through and making this list before the episode, and I was going through and I was like, is there anything else worth mentioning? Um, and Crystal said, well, we need to talk about Emily, um, who I don't think has been on the show, um, but a new employee to the land trust who is helping Crystal out and being her right hand man. And, um, she's been great. Yeah. You're happy. I think you're happy with your decision. She started with us in February and um, there's, you know, a lot to learn and she's done a great job. So we're very fortunate to have her and I hope she sticks around for a long time. Um, She's learning the nuances of working with grant agencies and uh, managing field trips and outings and (laughs) everything in between. And probably, uh, you know maybe has a little bit better time management skills than me, <laughs> which is a, which is a certain big plus, you know, who else is great is Addie. Addie's sitting in here with us. So I feel like I need to give her a shout out too. speaking of new employees. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to give a little story time, uh, to kind of close this, close this episode out and be thinking if there's something that we didn't touch on, um, you know, pop in at any time and interrupt me. So this weekend we had, we've got, over the next three weekends, events planned for every weekend. Uh, float trip this upcoming weekend, weather pending. Um, hopefully, it hopefully that's going to be on Tuckertown. Mm-hmm. Um, are they putting in at Flat Creek? Do I'm you know? not sure. Yeah, I don't need, do you know? Any? I think so. Yeah, probably putting in at Flat Creek. Um, shows what I know. And then the through hike, which is Crystal. Talk a little bit about through hike. I think it's worth. We this have, is our 10th through hike. Yeah, it's this awesome. started in 2013, and we've had one a year until this year. We had two. Um, so it's not the 10th annual, but it is the 10th ever mm-hmm. through hike. Um, more people this year than ever before. I never intended it to be a thing that we would do for the public every <laughs> every year. Uh, it was The first one was an experiment to see if we could do it. Um, and people loved it and asked when we were doing it again. So we've done it ever since. Um, this year we've got over a hundred folks joining us for a four day, three night backpacking trip of 40 miles on the Uwari trail. Yeah. And that's been the reason it's so important is one, we talked about the Uwari river and that kind of focal area, the Uwaris as a whole are a focal area. And this trail was kind of like, it was fragmented. I mean, it was a historic trail that was built off of handshake agreements and handshake agreements aren't forever um, and became fragmented. And it's been a goal of crystal and the land trust to reconnect that, uh, that trail and make it all the way through on publicly, publicly accessible land. No more handshake deals. Let's lock this thing in and protect it forever. And we are one property away. Yeah, no, which is awesome, which is that's one property away, you know, but that's, it was fragmented seven times. There were five major gaps, but one gap was really big and mm-hmm. had a number of landowners yeah. in it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a lot of work. Yeah. So, um, again, another resource in the in the Uori region, um, if you, that's your hobby, is getting out and backpacking. Um, it's another one you can you can utilize. 
and it's a great event. We'll we'll be doing it again next year. Yeah, a great um, introduction it's, is coming it's, to the through hike. Yeah, it's it's full for this year, um, but we'll be having it next year, and uh, it's a a really great environment. We have a lot of folks that do it year after year, um, so it's kind of like a reunion for them. Um, they're very well versed, uh, so it's and we provide a lot of support. There are a lot of trail angels, people that don't want to hike it but want to help um, that provide goodies along the way um so it's a it's a great first introduction to backpacking i've i've had a number of people tell me that this was my first backpacking trip and i went on to do it everywhere else so um you know it's a great place to learn about gear from other people who do this um and just you know tips and techniques for for how to do it on your own yeah i would say the experience is good for a beginner to an expert, you know, for the people that come year after year who are expert hikers or backpackers. Um, it's just kind of a fun reunion and just a laid back setting, but I would not say it's beginner's trip in terms of physical exertion. Yeah. You need to train for it. Yeah. Um, Every year. And it's nothing against them. I mean, it's, I'm not knocking anybody every year. Somebody's going to drop out or a few people are going to drop out. It's not easy. Like I said, it's the mountains. Um, and if you think it's not the mountains, you're wrong. And you, if you go on the through hike and you think it's not the mountains, and, you're gonna. And it's a it's a different level too when you're carrying thirty five or forty pounds on your back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But some of those hills are no joke. They're for real. So um, we're doing two next year, right? Are we going to do two next year? We're discussing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe. Um, back to my story. So speaking of backpacking, I. The reason I talked about the three events coming up, oh, I didn't even mention the last one. We're potentially everything depending, um, some circumstances are kind of popping up, but the plan is to have a bike race the following week. So the week after, I believe the 23rd, um, is that the 23rd? Yeah. Uh, a bike race for just a new demographic. So we'll be kind of promoting that more on the show as well. But the reason I bring that up is three weekends in a row of events so definitely wanted to capitalize on this past weekend. So I went, uh, me and Steely and my puppy Sally went to, I don't, actually don't even want to say exactly where it was. That's okay. It was in Pisgah. It was very, very far away from anywhere. Uh, I'll bring Ben up again, the drifter life. I'll bring him up. He actually um, shared a spot with me, which was very kind. Um, but it was, yeah, not far from the parkway, uh, miles of Miles and miles of gravel road switched back to get to this area, pulled off on the side of the road at a trailhead and walked down, backpacked in probably a mile and a half to a campsite on a river to go fly fishing. Went down in there. Um, Sally's having a ball. Uh, nice campsite. Didn't catch any fish the first night, which is tough. And we talk about the show alone a lot, you know, and – it's easy to be like the armchair quarterback where you're kind of sitting there and you're like, Oh, these, they, why can't they catch fish? So I went and I was like, we're not bringing Steely had gotten some like tuna or whatever. I was like, we're not bringing that. We're going to catch supper. Don't worry about it. Fortunately, she brought some vegetables cause we did not catch anything. Um, so I'm a little bit more hesitant to be like, Oh yeah, I'd be great on a loan. Um, cause I had like good <laughs> equipment too, <laughs> um, but didn't catch anything that first night, woke up the next morning, had some coffee and hiked deeper into down the river to go fish. 
So at this point, probably about three miles from the vehicle. And actually, before I get into that part of the story, there's a few shout outs that I'd like to give. Uh, the first is to Backcountry and Beyond. Um, Jeff had reached out to me um, and come, gosh, months ago and given us these Black Rifle coffee coffee bags, um, which are perfect for backpacking. Like you boil some water, you pour them into a, you know, you pour your boiling water over this bag in a cup, just like you would a tea bag. And they were awesome. I will, I will bring those on every camping trip I do from this point on. It's so easy. Um, the other element of having that coffee was having good water. And I actually went to rock outdoors, another sponsor of the show and had gotten a gravity filter. Uh, you ever use those? No, I do not. There's one called, it's called a platypus, and you literally just fill up the dirty water bag, which is like two liters or more, and you hang it up in a tree, and it filters the water through the filter really fast and gets just crystal clear, great drinking water that you don't have to worry about at all. No pumping required, about as easy as it can possibly get, and you get tons of water out of them. So um, that's an item I would really recommend. Go check them out at... um, at Rock Outdoors and get you one of those if you're a backpacker because I can't recommend it enough. Really handy tool. Um, so two of our sponsors, you know, made my trip a lot better, which is good because it got a lot worse the next day. Uh, we we hiked about a mile, so about, like I said, about three miles from the truck um, and started catching fish. And I was, you know, I figured everything out and some nice deep pools. is a wild stream. So, you know, every fish, no matter the size, is a trophy to me, you know, it's a, caught a couple of wild browns that were really pretty, um, and was starting to feel really good. And, uh, we're walking up river, no really good trail. And Sally's out in front of me. She's, you know, I, we get done fishing a hole and then I'll let her swim in each hole as we're going along. And about five yards out in front of me, I see her jump up in surprise and dump off the rock that she's standing on into the river. Underneath her is a copperhead. <clears throat> and I wasn't certain I wasn't certain what had happened. Um I knew that either she had stepped on it or she had been bitten. But I didn't I didn't know for sure. Um it all happened so fast. You know, I don't want to say fortunately it's, you know, what would you rather have your dog get bit or you get bit? One of us was going to get bit. Um it was very well camouflaged sunning on this rock. There was no, you know, the pattern was perfect. Leaves are starting to fall. They're laying on the rock. It's just, there's no seeing it. And, uh, she jumps into the river. The snake dumps off the rock and is swimming at her. So she's terrified because I'm yelling at her to get away from the snake. Um, and turns out she's been bit on the leg. And so I get her out of the water. She's bleeding from her leg, holding her leg up and, uh, fishing trips over at that point. (laughs) Um, So I guess there's a handful of, there's a handful of lessons to be learned. Nothing, you know, there's nothing, I guess another sponsor that's worth shouting out here. It's the first person I called is Grayson from Lost Highway, Gundog Kennels. As soon as I got up to my car and got service, I called him first and he was super comforting, made me feel better. Um, You know, there's not really that much you can do. You're not going to go and get Anna Venom, your little puppy. Um, And so he's just like, you know, talk to your vet, get some opinion, everything's going to be fine. And then he told me something that I think was I needed to hear, wanted to hear at that point, and that was it's unlucky. You know, it's like it's not a common thing. It's super unlucky, and 
you're taking your dog out and don't let this hinder you from taking your dog out. You've got this dog to be your companion out in the woods and, you know, unlucky, right. unlucky things happen. Right. Um, so that was, you know, that was really nice to hear. And I appreciate him. One thing that he's going to have coming up in 2022 and we've talked about some is snake aversion clinics um, where you can, you know, it's not a fun process for you or for the dog, but you can protect your dog from being bit by taking to that clinic. And that's maybe something uh, she may be snake averse now after after the events of this weekend. But she's uh, will definitely go to that clinic. And and uh, but I, I, again, I just don't think anything. There's nothing that could have been done. It's not like she was messing with it. Um, that being said, she gets bit fishing trips over. And there's a few things that I that I did that I think um you know, I don't think I would change anything that I, that I did. I picked her up and carried her out. Um, just wanted to put as le- as little blood flow through as possible, keep her calm. Um, she was in a lot of pain. It turns out uh, a pit viper bite is a painful ordeal. So I wouldn't recommend that for you or your dog. Um, and carried her out. And then I went, you know, I, another thing that I asked Grayson, again, he's not a vet. I'm not a vet. Um, but I asked him was, you know, do I need to take her to the emergency clinic? Do I need to find an emergency clinic? And he said, you know, I don't want to tell you what to do, what not to do, whatever you feel comfortable. I would go to your personal vet. Um, I was four miles from home or excuse me, four hours from home. So, you know, it's kind of a hard decision to make, but that's the decision that I did make and went and my vet was very gracious to meet me on a Sunday. And, um, Here's really what I, I gave her Benadryl. I'm not sure that does anything, um, but I did. But when your dog gets bit by a copperhead, you can go, and the things that you need to be cautious about are um, infection. Um, so got her some antibiotics, uh, got her a little bit of medicine for pain and medicine for swelling um, to take the swelling down. And that was it. I mean, it was the swelling was bad. The pain was really bad for a day. And with the help of Grace and my vet, all of that went away. All that went down. And good lesson for me, just in terms of just staying calm. Uh, it's not the end of the world. Be as fast as you can, but don't wreck your car trying to get there and handle it. And um, moral of the story is a day later, she's swelling's going down. She's wagging her tail. Everything's happy-go-lucky, and she's running up and down the stairs again. So there's a good end to the story. But um, I thought that would be an interesting story. We've we've definitely talked snakes before, um, and there's I know you're you're interested in all this, but I have a couple of questions. I was just reading an article, and it was referenced a friend of yours, I believe, Jeff Bean. Yeah. Um, and it was talking about baby copperhead season, which is I guess you know you can shoot the middle as like prime time, but from like August to early October is the window when you can come across baby copperheads. Everybody that I've talked to about the story is like, oh, was it, was it a big one? Was it an adult or was it a baby? I hear the babies are, are really bad. Uh, that's the ones you need to be scared of. And I think that's from the article that I was reading from Jeff. Um, it's complicated. But 
Have you heard, you know, sto- tale of baby I copperheads? I've always heard that, that small snakes, young snakes don't know how to regulate their venom. Mm-hmm. Um, that generally a snake is not going to inject venom into something that they can't eat mm-hmm. unless they absolutely have to. And they generally try to inject just enough to do the job mm-hmm. um, for whatever they're trying to eat. So I don't know. I don't know how that applies to when a human gets bit. I think that's right. I mean, I think it's like, you know, again, it's more complicated, but I think there's certainly... There's certainly some merit to that um, where like baby snakes, you know, I guess there's a difference between a predatory bite and a defensive bite. But, um, you know, a little baby snake's got to unleash what it's got in store. But for an adult snake, it can regulate it a little bit more and uh, dumping all of your venom into prey that doesn't need all your venom or a predator that doesn't need all your venom. uh, That's a caloric you know, everything's about calories and that's a caloric output. That's could be harmful. Yeah. Unnecessary and could be harmful to that snake down the road. I don't, the, the snake that bit Sally was an adult, uh, probably three, three and a half feet long. Um, and I don't think it was a, you know, I don't think it was a, it was a predator bite or it wasn't a predatory bite. It was a defensive bite. could have been a lot worse. And it was also on the leg. So at least it wasn't the face, you know, um, but yeah, I found that I found that interesting, and that's what I've heard from everybody. So I thought I'd do a little bit of research on you know baby copperheads, and there does seem to be a little bit of merit to that. Uh, baby copperheads, if you don't know, look a lot like their parents, but have that light green, lime green, yellowish tail on the end, um, Hershey kiss pattern. You know, it's kind of unmistakable pattern on the snake. Um, the reason I want to talk about this with you here is you know right now me and venomous snakes are not in the best of terms. But as a lover of snakes and as somebody who's not necessarily afraid of snakes, talk me off the ledge of being like any copperhead I see out when I'm, you know, out, I'm cutting its head off. I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of red, <laughs> which I know I, I won't. I'm, and, I'm never, and I've never been that way. I've always, you know, I haven't, I've not been that way. You know, I, I, they have just as much right to be out there as me, but... As a lover of snakes, talk about your... Well, I don't, I don't necessarily have the affinity for copperheads that I do, say, for a rattlesnake. Yeah. Just because they're a rare species. And, you know, I can still understand if you've got one around your house, you know... Kids or puppies or kids something, Kids yeah. or puppies that it's maybe not a safe place for it. Yeah. Um, and there's not a lot of success in moving snakes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we have to coexist with them. Yeah, 100%. Um, and accidents happen. And that's the, and that's happen. the thing to know. It's just it's rare. It's uncommon. No telling how many times we out in the woods doing our job have walked right past a copperhead. Oh yeah, and it's never the snakes you it. don't see that you need to worry about. Yeah, a hundred percent. Now <clears throat> you're always talking rattlesnakes, and you had a cool sighting. There's something that Cody and I <laughs> talked about on the show. Um, is we have like a running tally of cool things that we see in the woods and cool pictures that we have, and you showed me a really cool picture over lunch. Um, of a sighting that you just had, and it kind of ties in with baby snake season. So yeah, this is on well, a conserved property I too. I won't say where it is, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, there there are some places in the Uwaris that I am aware have uh, maternity sites pretty often. Um, I've been fortunate to see I think five uh, different uh, areas with baby rattlesnakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, they're, they're super cool. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but yeah, they're, you know, they're a 
they're a rare species and uh, something that also indicates you've got good habitat. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's a fortunate thing to see them from that regard. Um, but I know that not everybody is comfortable with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand that. But I think they're super cool. Yeah, they are super cool. I, <clears throat> You know, working this job, especially the one that I do now, I'm outside a lot. And I had yet to see a venomous snake this year. I thought I was kind of in the clear almost really. I know September and October, early October, that's a, you know, it's a prime time month, but got getting a little bit complacent this year, uh, towards the end of the year until that. Um, but in terms of venomous snakes that I see, I see them so rarely, so rarely. And I know you do too, except unless you're seeking them out, going to the, one of those sites. I mean, right. how many times no, doing I, this job? I've seen rattlesnakes, I think, just in walking through the woods three times in yeah. the 15 years that I've been at this job. Yeah, which is amazing. I've seen um, – the reason I bring that up is it seems it seems odd to me. You know, working in the Uwaris, um around here in the Piedmont um, – going through riparian areas, I feel like I'm in kind of the hot zone for snakes. This may be anecdotal. It probably is. Could be complete coincidence. Um, Of the venomous snakes that I've seen in the last two years, I've seen three rattlesnakes and that one copperhead that bit Sally in the river in the mountains. So in on rocks and swimming in the river, all of them, all four of them, and outside of that, I've seen one copperhead in the Piedmont. So if you're a Western North Carolinian, you can write in and tell me if that's an anecdote or if that's, you know, there's a trend right now. Um, I'd be curious to know. Uh, again, it's, I spend far more time in the Piedmont out in the woods than I do in the mountains. That's, you know, where I go vacation, but I've had a lot of snake sightings. So if you know anything more about that, maybe we can get Jeff on sometime and talk yeah. to him, talk to him about snakes. I'd love that. But um, be careful out there. And they're not out to harm you. It's just, <laughs> you, 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 you can just get unlucky sometimes. So any final notes, final thoughts? Uh, I'll end this the way that I ended the, the fifth episode that we had by saying that if you are a landowner that has an interest in protecting your property, we are here. Yep. And 90% of our work is reactionary. So um, it's hard for us to find you. So, you know, it can be you that's the landowner. It could be somebody that you know. But now you know a little bit more about what we do. If you know somebody that might be interested in, it doesn't have to be you in particular. You can at least share the word about what we do. And um, that's how projects happen. It's just all, all word of mouth. Um, and it keeps Crystal busy. So <laughs> thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Yeah, we will talk to you all next week. And uh, I don't know if we have a guest or not, but we will, we'll line something fun up. I really enjoyed this. So talk to you next week. If you like the show and you'd like it to keep coming, you should still know that this podcast is just one of the tools that we use here at Three Rivers Land Trust to further our conservation mission. Our number one priority and purpose has always been to conserve land and natural resources for future generations and to be a voice for wildlife to ensure that they have habitat forever here in North Carolina. This podcast is just a byproduct to further that mission. And to be a part of the team in the fight for this conservation mission, 
you should visit our website at threeriverslandtrust.org.